Gracious God, we ask that you would encourage us, that you would surround us, that you would support us. Lord, help is what we need and help is what you provide. And so we ask that you would bring your help even to us, even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book uh, Morality, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs tells the following story. It happened on our honeymoon. We had hitchhiked from the Swiss mountains to the Italian coast, finding ourselves at a little town called Pastum, an ancient place with fine Roman ruins. But it was the beach that drew us to it and the sea. Rarely had the sea seemed more inviting than just then. There was just one problem. The Talmud tells us that our duties of a parent to a child is to teach him or her how to swim. Unfortunately, my parents never learned that page, and I never learned how to swim. But as we sat on the beach and looked out across the water, I realized that the shore must be sloping very gently indeed. People were far out into the sea, and yet the water was only coming up to their knees. It looked safe just to, to walk out, and so it was. I walked out to where I had seen people standing just a few minutes before, and the water gently lapped against my knees. Then I started walking back to shore. That's when it happened. Within a minute, I found myself out of my depth. How it happened, I'm not sure. There must have been a dip in the sand. I had missed it on my way out, but on my way back, I walked straight into it. I tried to swim. I failed. I kept going under. I looked around for some possible source of rescue. The other people bathing were a long way away, too far to reach me, I thought, too far even to hear. Besides which, we were in Italy. I didn't speak the language and, and didn't know how to make myself understood. I was sure this was the end. As I went under for the fifth time, I remember thinking two thoughts. What a way to begin a honeymoon, and what is the Italian word for help? It's difficult to recapture the panic I felt. Clearly, someone rescued me or I wouldn't be writing now, but it did, at the time, seem like the end. As far as I can reconstruct that moment in my memory, I had already reconciled myself to drowning when someone, seeing me thrashing about, swam over, took hold of me, and brought me to the shore. He deposited me almost unconscious at the feet of my wife. I was too shocked to do or say anything. I never found out his name. Somewhere out there is a man whom I owe my life. That, for me, has always been what help is like. You put out a hand, and someone seizes it and lifts you to safety. Self-help would not have worked out at all. I was the problem, not the solution. Help, for me, has always been other help. And Sachs concludes, self surely, is where it begins, not where it ends. It's the problem, not the solution. If I look back at my life, I discover that it was always someone else who had set me on a new trajectory. I suspect the same is true for most people, someone who was there when I needed it, 
who listened as we poured out our problems, who gave us the encouraging word when we were about to give up, who believed in us more than we believed in ourselves. Or maybe it was actually someone who looked us in the eye and told us the honest truth, that we were self-obsessed, that we were wallowing in our emotions, that instead of thinking about how to develop the mindset to achieve great things, we should stop reading and start doing. Help. I have found time and time again, comes not from the self, but from others. Coming back to us, as self-assured, self-confident, and self-reliant people, what happens when we are not enough? What happens when we need help? Where do we go for support? While we think about that, let me remind you where we are and where we're going. In our Lenten series, we're looking at the person of David, who was known as a man after God's own heart. And as we've been talking about, we're kind of taking that phrase in two different ways. David's heart is both aligned with and aimed towards God's heart. So David's heart takes after God's heart. It's built in the same way, feels the same things, is passionate about the same purposes. It's aligned with God's heart. But then David's heart is also aimed at God's heart. David longs for God, loves God, pursues God, follows after God. And as we see this in David, we also recognize that our hearts could be more aligned with and more aimed towards God's heart. Not least because our hearts are often disheveled and distracted and distant. Our hearts are often too busy with all of our own things. Our hearts are often chasing after all of our other various loves. Which brings us to the question beneath this series. Could we reset, could we reorder our loves such that God carries a greater gravitational pull to our hearts? Could we learn to love God more and better, even and especially in this Lenten season? And so as we get started on all this, if you would, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14, and we're kind of fast-forwarding the story a little bit here. 1 Samuel 23, 14. As we will see, the landscape has changed. David has gone from being a help and a hero to becoming a threat and a fugitive. And to try and explain this really briefly, David's popularity and his success has grown and grown and grown and grown, and King Saul starts to rightly feel a little bit less secure and less secure and a a little bit threatened to the point where soon Saul is subtly, if unsuccessfully, trying to kill David, to get rid of this opposition, to get rid of this threat. But David keeps eluding him. In desperation, finally, Saul has to start sending his full army to go try and capture and kill David. And again, David keeps eluding 
Saul. That's where our story picks up today. 1 Samuel 23, 14. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gilbeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakalilah, south of Heshomim? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you if he is in the area. I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arba, son, or south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalakaloth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? 
This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because He is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May He consider my cause and uphold it. May He vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family." So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Amen. Whoa, close call. Uh, backing up just a bit. Uh, let's simply notice the change that has happened as David has gone from the hunter to the hunted. Last week, David didn't have to fight Goliath and yet ran towards the giant. Today, David doesn't want to fight Saul, and yet Saul is running after him. Now it's David who needs to be saved from his enemy. And yet there's nowhere to go, no place to rest, and no one to help. What does all this have to do with us? Well, I find it interesting that even David needs help, needs support. And in this, I think he's similar to us, because while we don't like to admit it, maybe there are times that we need help as well. More than that, I'm struck by how David finds support while in a desert as his friend comes to him and re-aims David's heart back towards God. And then later, David finds support while in the cave as God's faithfulness realigns David's heart back towards God's. So a friend re-aims his heart, and later God's faithfulness realigns his heart. And in the remainder of our time, I want us to work our way through these ideas and see if we can't also have our hearts re-aimed and realigned with God's. And so we head back into the desert with David being chased by Saul. And as we do, let's recognize that one of the features and feelings that comes with being on the run in a desert is the feeling of being exposed. 
because there aren't many places to hide or to rest in a desert. And so you're constantly on the run. You're constantly looking over your shoulders because your enemy could be anywhere and they could come from anywhere. That being said, being in a desert isn't all bad because you also can escape in any direction. So as long as you're quick enough, as long as you're alert enough, you might be fine. But if you let your guard down just for a moment, well, don't do that. And as we can imagine, the fear and confusion must have just settled deeply into David's heart during this. I mean, his life has done a a 180 here. And it'd be easy to feel like God has pulled out the rug from under him. Remember, when we started reading in the series about David, he was being anointed the next king of Israel. Next thing he knows, he's he's playing the harp for the king and, and he's promoted to being one of the armor bearers. Then he's beating a giant, rescuing the kingdom. Soon he's a general winning battles left and right. And then all of a sudden, the king has a change of heart, and suddenly David goes from being Mr. Popular to being on the most wanted list. He's gone from King Saul's balm to King Saul's bane. Instead of spending time in the royal courts as the king elect, he's now finding himself in the wilderness as an outcast on the outside. And when that happens, what are we to think? Has has God changed His mind? Has God chosen someone else? Has God left David? Has, Has David fallen out of favor? What's more, we can imagine the fear. And in light of last week, that almost sounds strange. I mean, remember, he's already stood up to a giant here. But confronting a giant in a moment of strength is one thing. Being pursued relentlessly by a giant who just won't stop, that's another entirely. You can't rest. You can't hide. You can't stop. And if you make a mistake, you're dead. It's exhausting. It's disheartening. It's frightening. And it's at this point that his friend Jonathan finds him, and Jonathan helps David find strength in God. That's an amazing phrase. Jonathan helps David find strength in God. Jonathan encourages him. Jonathan supports him. Jonathan believes in him. And in this, Jonathan points David back towards God, to help David find his strength in God. Because the reality is sometimes we doubt that God is faithful and we need to have our faith restored. Sometimes we forget God and we need to be reminded that He is near. Sometimes we lose sight of God and we need to have our hearts re-aimed back toward God. And this is what Jonathan does for David. And God rescues David. I wonder if there are times when we are called to be more like Jonathan. As we strengthen those who need support. And as we aim them back towards God. And I wonder if there are times that we need Jonathans. Because we have 
been beaten up by life a little too much because we have lost our way, because we have lost some faith. And we need someone to come into our lives. We need to allow someone, maybe, to come into our lives and re-aim us back toward God, strengthen us again in the Lord. A little later, David finds himself in a cave, and this presents a whole different host of problems. Unlike a desert, you now do have somewhere to hide, but you have nowhere to escape. If you are found, you are cornered, you are trapped. And this is where we find David. What's more, as you picture the scene, right before Saul enters the cave, we know the king doesn't just wander around all by himself. That's not how you, how you lead a nation or whatever. So the king's not just wandering, which means if the king is near, the army is near. And so if you're David, you're standing at the mouth of the cave because you have to be on alert because you're in a cave, and if you get cornered, you're trapped, and so you're kind of watching to see what happens, and all of a sudden, this whole army rolls up into the valley below your cave. David has to be standing there looking, or his sentries are, or someone's watching, and all of a sudden, Saul's army comes pouring into the valley right at your doorstep, which means this is the end. That's the ball game. There's nothing you can do, and there's nowhere you can go. But God has been faithful, and God again intervenes. Because Saul's intelligence says that David is further on in the wilderness. And, and so Saul kind of lets his guard down a little bit. He goes into the cave by himself to relieve himself. That is what you think it is. Not expecting that David and his merry men are in the same cave, just deeper in. And notice if you're David, you have some options here. You can do nothing or you can end this fight, albeit not in the most gent gentlemanly of ways. Though it's also recognized that for David, this is a little like murder. I mean, you can make the case that this is self-defense, but it's a hard case to make when the person is vulnerably sitting with his back to you, clearly unaware that you are there. Of course, for all of David's troops, this is a pretty obvious opportunity. Uh, I mean, clearly God has given you Saul today. And with one flick of a knife, we don't have to be outcasts any longer. We don't have to be on the run any longer. We don't have to be in danger any longer. What's more, you get to be king, which was kind of the point all along, and we get to be your elite. Again, this one seems pretty obvious. Uh, David, do you, want, do you want to do the honors? Do you want me? Rochambeau, I mean, we could flip a coin. I mean, who? Someone, this, this, this is, who wants to do it? Anyone? Let's just, let's just end this right now. All you have to do is forfeit a little bit of your soul. But David seems to sense that this isn't what God wants. Somehow his heart has, has more realigned back with God's. And so instead, he stealthily sneaks up on Saul, cuts off a corner of his robe. 
And I don't know why we're on this theme, but by now, if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, you should recognize that this means maybe more than meets the eye. Because it's playing on, on two different levels. The first is the obvious one. You cut off a corner of the cloak. Clearly, that shows you came intimately close to someone and they did not know you were there. I mean, it becomes pretty obvious. I was next to you and you're like, oh, yep, nope, that's not, that connects here and that's, whoa, that was a close one. But if you've been with us for the last month or so, you probably also remember that the edge of the cloak... In the Hebrew is that word kanafs, which is the edge, the fringe, the tassels, which is not just a reminder of the, the commandments, like thou shalt not murder, but it's also a symbol of one's person or, or a being or authority. And so for David to cut off a portion of Saul's cloak, this was also a reminder that God has cut off a part of Saul's authority and given it to David. And again, clearly, God has delivered Saul into David's hand. And clearly, God has rescued David again. More to the point, God has seen David's need, and God shows up with help, with, with support. When David needs it most, God is present with him and helps him through. I wonder about us. Are we like David here? Do we recognize our need for God's presence in our lives? Do we long for more of God with us? Are we the kind of people who rely on God even in the face of our fear, of the unknown? Do we have the eyes to see that God supports us through it? I wonder how we would live differently if our hearts were more aligned with God's heart. I wonder if that would help us be more aware of where God is moving and how God is calling us. I wonder how that would change us. As we start to get to know David's heart. I wonder if we could be the kind of people who aim our hearts a little bit more towards God, in pursuit of God, trying to get to know God better. And as we do, as we come to know God better, I wonder if we could want the same wants and feel the same hurts and grieve the same griefs and love with the same loves. I wonder how we might be changed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you show up in David's life, and we thank you for the way that you show up in ours. We thank you that there are people like Jonathan who can strengthen us in the Lord. And for some of us, Lord, we pray that you would send more of those people into our life. For others of us, we pray that we can be that person, that we would have the courage and the strength 
to help others. Lord, and we recognize that you are faithful and that you are with us. Even when we feel exposed, even when we feel surrounded, even when we feel trapped, even when we feel overwhelmed, that in the midst of it all, you are with us. Help us recognize your presence better. And may that presence change us. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus who reminds us that you are with us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.